our young people are going to open up their toolbox, their little life's toolbox, and they're going to reach in and grab the tool that they think best allows them to unlock the opportunity of the moment. And if we haven't really invested in them having a, a diversity of tools for different circumstances, then they'll pull whatever tool is in there. And so imagine trying to beat a nail in, you know, with a wrench. That's not what a wrench is designed for. But if there are no hammers in here, they're going to be adapted. They're going to figure out, okay, well, we can beat on this thing with a wrench too. we get this thing to go in on. And I think that's a beautiful thing because it highlights that by adult behavior changes, I need to help them figure out you know, what a hammer looks like and how to use it. Hello, and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll hear conversations that generate one aha moment after another for you. There is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world. Despite the negative noise, there is something we call a conspiracy of goodness happening right now that we just can't hear because of the, all the doom and gloom that's rising to the top of the internet. But in this wave of goodness and progress, we are finding a whole group of innovators and thought leaders who are making the world a better place every day. They're tackling some of the world's most challenging problems and they're winning. And we really think that we need to know what they see, how they get around obstacles, how they perceive possibility and opportunity. And today we're going to talk to a thought leader who I am so excited to get to know better. I spent some time on a pre-call with A.J. Craybill, and I've got to tell you, he's an education leader in education reform. He helps school boards and school leadership make fundamental change so that we can start creating an education system that gives children what they need. He is a master of a way of being in the world that protects everyone's dignity and yet challenges us to change. I am so happy to have run into AJ's work because not only is he talking about a topic that we all need to be concerned about, he's talking about it in such a fresh way about possibility, education, of course, but he also has this way of making us all feel like things are possible, that we can do hard things, have hard conversations, protect each other's dignity, not ratchet up the drama, and still get fundamental change done. AJ has an amazing life story where he started in the Kansas City foster children's setting. And out of that, you know, went to the University of Kansas and became a business leader and then devoted himself to helping education get to a point where it meets the needs of our modern society and all children. So I'm sure there's a lot more to say about your work, AJ, but welcome, AJ Craville. Thank you so much for having me, Lynn. So, AJ, you know, we had a, this expansive conversation the other day, and and one of the things that, that you say a lot, I understand, on the road, because AJ does a ton of public speaking, he says students to, student outcomes don't change until adult behaviors change. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> this is at the core of the whole problem and probably the solution, right? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, the intention behind that is to just really be a constant source of challenge. It's, it's a commitment between us in the education world and the students we serve that whenever a little AJ, you know, in our classroom isn't yet where he needs to be, <clears throat> that I'm going to constantly look inward to identify what is it that I can change about my adult behavior. That, that it, it's not a ignoring of externalities. It's not this 
blind, hopeful optimism that other external circumstances don't exist, the things that are happening with family and the community, and that all of that is irrelevant. But it is to suggest that in the face of whatever little AJ is encountering his daily lived experience, that I still have agency in my behavior, that I still have agency in how I show up in his life, and that I'm going to be willing, out of a commitment was possible for little AJ, to make whatever changes I need to make to try to calibrate for what is it that he needs in this moment. And so that's that's what it's about. It's, it's this intentional commitment of where do I choose to stand as a person committed to what's possible for our students. And so it's, it's, it's challenging because often what happens is we want to point to, well, what about all these other things that are going on and these other things that prevent and that block little AJ from getting where we want to be? Well, what about all those things? I'm not suggesting they don't exist. I am suggesting that they will continue to exist and that my commitment isn't I'll educate little AJ once everything else in his orbit is perfect. It's that I will constantly work to perfect my responses to the realities that he's facing. And this is one of the things that you said to me, which I plan to be way down lower in the interview, but we might as well dive right into it right now. You have this great way of talking about how I think you have a wonderful way of saying maladaptive behavior is actually adaptive. It's adaptive. Let's <laughs> focus on the adaptive part, no doubt. Okay, so I, I oh, I got goosebumps. I have thought of that sentence so many times in the last two weeks when dealing with my brother, when somebody who was horrifying in, in a mall yeah. setting, in a line in the mall. I thought, wow, maladaptive behavior is actually adaptive. Yeah, no. When, when you think about what you see someone doing through that lens, yeah. you may be able to eke yourself over to, to think about what they're going through. So talk to us about the sentence. Maladaptive behavior is actually adaptive. That's a question of what are they adapting to? But part of what I'm joyful about is when I see young people trying to figure out how to, how to be successful in the world that they haven't given up. Whether it's, I think there'll be authentically cause for, and we certainly forgive them for having totally given up. You said, you know what, there's nothing that happened here in job. It's going to lay down and just, you know, let, let oblivion take me. But that's not where I see these young folks go. I see them trying to figure out in the context of what I'm confronting with the wisdom and the experience available to me right now, like what is it that I can possibly do that can advance what I'm trying to create and what I'm trying to be in this world? And sometimes just basic, you know, level survival. But I think that is... I think that's something to be tapped into. That it's, that is a cherished gift that we ought to be lifting up and, and praising and trying to figure out how how can we cultivate this this willingness to to adapt and to try to modify and to try to figure out how to make the best of challenging circumstances. And so when I look at the behaviors of our young people, that's the lens that I'm generally observing them from. Is when I see you know so for example, if a young person decides to join a gang, I never go to the place of I bet this person woke up one day and said, how can I be involved in a dangerous circumstance that may lead to violence? Like, I don't, I don't think that's how any of our students wake up. I think instead they wake up, I, I want to experience a sense of belonging. I want to experience a sense of safety. And the places that I'm being told I should get it from aren't producing it in a way that I observe it. <clears throat> where can I find it from? You know, where can I get that? Okay, so this person over here is promising that to me. And in the wisdom available and the experience available, 
you know, to a 10-year-old, that might make perfect sense. What that means to me is, what could we be doing to create the context of belonging and safety in a child's life such that the options available to them for getting those needs met don't come down to this guy down the street who's making promises and that I don't really recognize their predation. Yeah, it's so true. You know, when you gave me, I knew you were onto something when you said that sentence to me, maladaptive behaviors are actually adaptive. But when you lay it right at the feet of what's going on in our neighborhoods or what's going, what we see on the news, and you say, you know, this behavior is actually adaptive, and it comes back to safety and belonging, it, then it's so easy to understand. Um, you know, the benefit of that is that it gives me some insights into what's the next step, because because that's what I that's what I want us to constantly, you know, as an entire society being engaged in is, okay, what is true for our students right now? Where do I want them to be? And what's the next step? We don't have to hit the home run. It doesn't have to be a grand slam. We don't have to solve it all at once. Just we need to identify what is the next step and then the next step. And the next problem will present itself and we'll find the next step for that. And, and if we're willing to pursue the chain of events that unfurl for us in the lives of our children, and we're willing to find the next step and the next step and the next step, then at the end of that effort is the possibility that we want you know, for our young people to, that they can live choice-filled lives that allow them to be a contribution to themselves and their families and a contribution to us as a large society. You know, and your message um, resonates with something. I have a guest. Uh, we're we're going to put this in the show notes, so don't worry. We, have, we spoke with a guest from London who started a group in London that takes folks who have been radicalized to these Islamic groups that, for instance, blew up the double-decker bus four or five years ago in London. And she has an experience of being radicalized herself and getting herself out. But she talks about mm. exactly the same thing, exactly the same thing, AJ, is that the, these groups are offering kids safety and a sense of belonging. Yeah. And so the group that she started also does that, but in, in spades, in magnificent beauty, so that if a kid has a choice between this group over here that may bomb a bus and hurt others, They've got another choice. Well, and that the point that you just made there is exactly it. When I'm working with students uh, in our school systems who may have made some choices that we didn't want them to make, that, that the rest of us look at and say, this choice is not optimal for you. It's not helping you live the life that you want. But what I really want us as adults to be constructive is, you know, what is the context in which that choice was made? What options did they, did they experience in the moment? Because it's not actually about what options are legitimately available. It's about what options are they really experiencing in the moment? What options are they really present to? So if there are 10 options, but I'm only looking this direction and there's one here, and there happens to be nine behind me, all I need to do is turn around and I would see them. But if I don't know to turn around or if somebody hasn't taken those options from behind me and placed them in front of me, that I'm not really experiencing those as options in the moment. And so really a lot of our work is, you know, how can we create experience of here are the options available. And so to in your other guest point, yeah, of really having people understand that, yes, you could go that way, you could go this way. Which of these is going to really get you to where you want to be? Which of these really honors who you're trying to be? And in my experience, when students are fully present to here are a series of different options and, and they have the tools to take advantage of those options, in my experience is students do it, young people do an amazing job of picking the one 
the option that is really best suited of the options that they recognize and that they have the tools to take advantage of. My experience is they do an amazing job of picking the ones that's great for them and that, and that we, we would want for them. And so in that moment, our task becomes this idea that student outcomes don't change the bill of build behavior change. The task becomes, what do I have to do to help them be present to the options that are available? And what do I have to do to make sure that they have the tools to access those options? Or, or the way that I often describe it when I'm training teachers and faculty, are young people going to open up their toolbox, their little life's toolbox, and they're going to reach in and grab the tool that they think best allows them to unlock the opportunity of the moment. And if we haven't really invested in them having a, a diversity of tools for different circumstances, then they'll pull whatever tool is in there. And so imagine trying to beat a nail in, you know, with a wrench. Like that's not what a wrench is designed for. But if, if there are no hammers in here, they're going to be adapting. They're going to figure out, okay, well, we can beat on this thing with a wrench to see if we can get this thing to go in a little bit. And I think that's a beautiful thing because it highlights that my adult behavior changes, I need to help them figure out you know, what a hammer looks like and how to use it. This is so, and this is so quintessential to um, many of the efforts to improve the lives of kids that aren't finding what they need to be their best selves, right? That a lot of these, a lot of our efforts are well, well intending, but you point to the fact that we've got to get across this chasm from saying it's about better student outcomes, but then putting our efforts on sports equipment or after-school programs or whatever, it's not actually going to focus on getting better student outcomes right out of the starting block. Talk to us about this. Here's what we save yeah. and here's what we do problem. Yeah, I think part of where this misalignment of intention and impact comes from is a lack of clarity around the value chain that gets us the things that we want. And so in, in this context, what I'd say is that there are the inputs, those are the resources that are applied um, at the beginning of the cycle. There are the outputs, those are the measures of the quality of implementation and kind of where we're at in the middle of the cycle. And then there are the outcomes, those are the, the results that we want at the end of the cycle. And so people can generally kind of get clear about what are the results we want at the end of the cycle. But then there winds up being this misalignment with the inputs and the outputs. Instead of saying, focus on what's the outcome that we want, people get really fired up about what is the input that, that we think makes the most sense. And now let's just do a lot of that input. But in reality, if you really wanted to accomplish the thing that you say is important, you'd actually start from here and then you'd work your way back and say, okay, so what output metrics would help us get that? Okay, so what input metrics are most aligned with these outputs that's most aligned with these outcomes? So that there's this value chain that you would follow starting at the end and working your way back. And that would give rise to what should we be focused on? Which inputs should we be focused on deploying? But often what happens is people think, here's the outcome we want over here. And here's the inputs that I know about. Well, I know I happen to know about this book. I happen to know about this program. I happen to know about this curriculum or I happen to have an affinity for this particular input. And so let's do that with the belief that if I just do this input that I like and that I'm familiar with and it's comfortable for me, it obviously will give rise to this outcome that we said we want. That is absolutely almost never going to work out. Uh, it, it's a, the, the fundamental disconnect there is instead of starting here, 
with the outcome and then working toward the output. How do we measure that we're on track to the outcome? And then based on that, what inputs are most aligned with accomplishing this output? And then use that to determine the, what strategies we're going to use. Instead, we're quick to jump to strategies that we're familiar with or that we like or that we're comfortable with and hope that they're aligned. And the reality is they're almost never aligned. Okay, so I'm going to get real about this. This is at the heart of what we read about in the newspaper on school board fighting, right? Like, right? It's never about the outcomes. It's always about the inputs. Yes. It's always about the inputs. I, I defy you to find one of these fights that blew up where they were debating, well, what is it that we want our students to know and be able to do with the end? Of, no, that was not what the debate was about. The debate was around, well, I think we should use this strategy or I think we should use that strategy. And and nowhere in the conversation, I'm almost certain if you go back and look, was there, okay, here's the result we're trying to get. Here are the metrics in the middle that tell us that we're getting closer. And here are the things that have the most evidence of being able to accomplish these metrics. That miss, that whole missing piece then has us sit around and pray over and fight over the inputs. And I, I think part of the reason for that, I think it was human nature to an extent, is the inputs are really tangible. Like, should we buy this phone or should we not buy this phone? Should we hire this person or should we not hire this person? And there's a tangibility to those that, that I think makes it more comfortable. And the intangibility of, I want children to be critical thinkers. Well, you can't really hold that in the same way that you can hold a book or hold an employment contract or something like that. And so I think I think there is this, this mental fallacy of leaning toward the things that are tangible and that are easily understood, easily measured. And that seduces us away from doing the hard work necessary to improve student outcomes. Oh, I, I just think that that just puts it all so succinctly. I mean, I know the next time I read a newspaper article like that, I'm going to go, wait, 90% of this article is about everybody fighting for their strategy. Right. Not one person is talking about the outcome. I know. I, I think it's really a light bulb moment in all of us because, you know, it just doesn't apply to school boards, AJ, right? This is our. This, this is what is this happening around. This is, this is part of the experience of being given. Absolutely. That, yes. Yes. I mean, you can think about my mother died and or and this happens to a lot of people. Then you've got to clean up the estate, right? And I see this in my dental practice all the time is that otherwise pretty healthy, rigorous families can fall apart when yeah. trying to decide how to manage the estate and all the bits and pieces. Because I think it comes down to this same focus on the strategy instead of saying, hey, we want to all come out of this as friends. We want to all love each other at the end of this hard yeah, What process. do we want the end to look like? And how do we work back? Right? I love this about your message because it applies to so much more than w what's happening in education. Although, gosh, I, I don't know if it would be harder to find a more important place to practice it. That we got to figure out education and what we want to do next. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about all these wonderful ways that AJ sees that we can optimize education for the results that we want. And a modern day education system really needs to be looked at carefully. So we'll take a break and we'll be back. Hi, Dr. Linda here. Many of you know that the Mothership website of this podcast is called The Goodness Exchange. And there you can find articles, a video library, podcast, and content collections that point to what's right with the world. You can visit every day and you'll find the antidote to all the negative noise out there in the world. Okay, that solves the problem in our personal lives. We can choose what to give our attention to every morning and end our day with something positive. But 
what about our work environments? We need to feel supported and come alive in those cultures. But that's becoming harder and harder when most of us go to virtual work. And many of us who are working with others still never have shared positive experiences with our colleagues. By definition, culture comes from shared experience. So employees find it harder and harder every day to create an environment that attracts and retains other great people. Well, enter the Goodness Exchange and our extraordinary content, which celebrates an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows enough about yet. My team and I at the Goodness Exchange are making certain that employees of optimistic, values-driven companies have instant access to the positive news out there today. Because science is telling us that it's time to start celebrating what's right with the world. And here's the thing. There are so many positive stories out there about astounding solutions to some of our world's biggest problems, about wonders and leaps in human potential. But most are going completely uncelebrated. Your culture can change that and can be changed by a new focus on goodness and progress. In fact, with all that negative noise out there, your work culture can be infused by a sense of flourishing. People can be sharing ideas and swapping stories of wonderful, ingenious solutions around the water cooler again. With instant access to good news, employees can stay on their feet and take turns being the one who makes opportunity at setback. People who use the Goodness Exchange every day have a spring in their step. They radiate joy and confidence and creativity because they know a far more complete picture of what's going on in the world. If you'd like to chat about infusing the culture where you work with a tone of celebration of goodness and innovation and progress, let's hop on a Zoom. You can introduce us to your HR director or your chief of culture. You know, if used consistently, our content can give companies a way to turn something aspirational like positivity into a concrete way of being. Thanks. Talk to us at the Goodness Exchange about change and flourishing where you work. Okay, we're back with A.J. Crayville. A.J. is renowned for guiding school boards and leadership through difficult conversations that need to be had around resetting our priorities in education and then carefully designing ways that we get to where we want to go by looking at the results, constantly keeping our eye on the results instead of the strategies. And that's, of course, where all the friction seems to be in society. But also we're talking about to AJ about his wonderful, uplifting insights into human nature so that we can all live with way more discord and I mean, way less discord and way less fear and more joy. So thank you for joining us today, AJ Crayville. Glad to be. Okay. So one of the things that I that you said that I thought was really, really important is this, our willingness to move away from, well, it seems like we're always investing in honoring our ancestors instead of investing in our children's futures. We've got to tease apart that too, you know? There's a lot of this, oh, well, reading, writing, and arithmetic was what how I got to where I am, so it's good enough for me, you know, why do we have to change? So talk to us about that, honoring our ancestors by trying to keep our things the same versus investing in our children's future. I think at its core, there's just a, at the, at the level of society, a 
perpetual failure to pass the marshmallow test. So I don't know if you're familiar with the marshmallow test, but basically you, know, you put the marshmallow out there, you tell the kid, if you don't eat it for a while or come back, have two marshmallows, it's going to be great. And then you leave the room and then you watch, you know, through the secret window to figure out what they do. And some kids, they just can't handle it. They just immediately pop it in the mouth and they eat it. And that's fine. And you come back, it's like, okay, you ate it. That's, there's nothing wrong with that, but now you don't get a second marshmallow. And it's like kids sad about that. Then other kids, you know, with partial, you know, ability to defay delay gratification like they'll pick it up and they'll like lick the lick the marshmallow but they'll put it back down it's like okay that's enough but that's gonna tie together which like get my two marshmallows and then you got these kids which is like rock solid just like no i'm good i'm just gonna sit here wait for this marshmallow the second marshmallow to appear there i have two i gotta just pause and say folks just google the word marshmallow test and try and go back to the original videos from the 1960s i'm yeah. telling you it's more fun. And then you'll think of, it really is. You'll, you'll see yourself and everyone you know, <laughs> different kinds of children and the way they react is really hilarious. But yes, it, it is. It's the marshmallow test, isn't it? But isn't it though, like at a, at a collective level, like, so the human organism that we are, like they're this massive human organism that, pop, that inhabits this planet, that collectively, often, instead of thinking, you know, what is the investment that we could be living into down the road. Yeah, we we, just, we don't. And we don't for all the same reasons, you know, that the children, you know, who don't wait for the second marshmallow don't. If I uh, have had inadequate, you know, caloric intake in the last week, the idea of waiting on the marshmallow doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like I'm starving right now. Or if I've dealt with a lot of deceptive adults, adults who have said one thing and done another, then why should I trust you know, there's actually a second marshmallow coming. I mean, so I, I think there are a variety of things that conspire. I think the more kind of privileged experience and upbringing that you know children have, often probably going to be easier to wait around and trust on that. Like, I had a full meal this morning. I'm good. Like I, I, I can hold out and wait. But if I haven't had you know a full healthy meal in a while. Like that, that's just a different circumstance. Uh, and so I, I wonder how often then, you know, as a collective humanity, we're operating from the sense of distrust about what the future may or may not hold and the sense of scarcity about what the past has held. And those conspire to have us immediately reach for the marshmallow rather than think through, you know, what is the dividend that we could get if we paused, um, if we really invested? <clears throat> so I think that collectively then leads to the strong bias toward honoring our predecessors rather than honoring our successors, uh, that our descendants wind up paying the collective bill as opposed to enjoying the collective dividend. And you know that this is another topic that we can talk to strictly in terms of children and education, or we can look at the wider society. Does this, where we start from, you make a point to say is how much community, your community, that's your school, your neighborhood, your family, everything has taught you to operate for a position of fear and scarcity or yeah. not. Right. So that is also something that happens in the wider world. So talk to me about it, how well, this impacts, but this impacts child development as well. I mean, and at a very early age, and to some extent, we have emerging evidence that even not only pre before they're born, but even preconception that there are epigenetic factors that are going on, that there are circumstances in the environment that mom's experiencing around fearfulness and stress. You know, you have stress hormones and cortisol circulating, you know, through mom's body that that, that has an impact on embryonic development. And 
that it's turning on and turning off various genetic expressions that predispose a child to having some of the same concerns around scarcity, some of the same concerns you know, around you know, trusted, uh, that even things of that nature can then be passed on epigenetically transmitted from mother to child. I mean, and so it shouldn't then particularly be all that surprising that when we've had a child who's experienced you know, this kind of ongoing persistent state of scarcity, that then they show up in kindergarten and then we're like, hey, well, now you should fully trust that we are here to serve your interest and that it's all going to be okay because that matches the entirety of your experience that you've had during your lifetime. Well, no, it, it doesn't at all. And so the challenge that creates is then we have children showing up in our classrooms and schools and they're not really in an optimal space for learning. And it falls to the schools that it, it winds up falling on us. That we've got to figure out how do we how do we help little AJ transition from kind of what their lived experience may have been into a place of willingness and readiness to learn and to be part of the learning community? And that is not a, I realize that the way I've described it may not make us clear, but that's, that actually cuts across kind of all racial, all economic, all race barriers. Like whether children grow up with an experience of scarcity or not, isn't merely a matter of affluence. And so that's the challenge that, you know, schools, it becomes that we inherit to accept all children who come through the door. That's the promise of public education. And then to try to figure out, meet them where they're at and how can we calibrate what we're offering in the schoolhouse to match whatever their lived experience has been and help bring them into the fullness of what's possible for themselves. Okay. So there are two ways we could go with this. I'll try to choose one. So one of the things, so the study that I think you're talking about, I want to tell people if they're curious, there are studies from that indicate that people who went through the great potato famine in, in Ireland, that two and three generations later, which they're still carrying some DNA changes from their ancestors. So, you know, you go through deep scarcity and fear and all that stuff and you are you're going to we as a society are going to have to work harder to make sure everyone depend even there with the genetic propensities have a chance at living great lives of impact and and you know a a life well lived but then we got back to say one direction we could go which we will is this wonderful topic that you like to talk about the survival priority versus the expression like i love i love this concept i know it applies to most of the young people I've ever contacted, been in contact with through my dental practice, but just my own kids, everyone's kids, you see this in small children. It's survival or it's expression. And the way to release the best in human beings is definitely to make sure they operate from a sense of expression. Talk to us about that. Well, certainly I feel inspired to try to figure out how, on a global scale, how can we have the highest percentage of the human population step above the survival priority and, and into a space where I'm no longer living with the experience of every single day is a struggle simply to survive. And now I'm living with the experience of I have an opportunity to express and be the most powerful version of myself. It, but it does come down to what what am I experiencing in the moment? Do I experience that, that the only thing I can focus on right now is survival in my context, whether it's socially, whether that's physiological or not, or am I in a place where I feel enough safety and enough kind of grounded in my own being that 
in the context of whatever is put in front of me, that I still am able to make the choice to be focused on on creation rather than merely on survival. The challenge is so much of our society, even you know, in the United States, where we're surrounded by an unending bounty of wealth that there are so many of our children who seem to be in this place that, that I recall all too, that I feel I'm all too familiar with, where there are moments in life where I was clearly driven by a survival priority, where trying to create what is possible a week out, two weeks out, a month out, a year out is not, it's just too far. It's too far away. And that survival in the moment and whether physiological survival or just social survival, like that is all I could be focused on. In the context of that, my view of what are all the options available to me becomes so constrained that then, even though there are some really amazing options around me, I don't experience them. I certainly can't apply the tool set that I have to try to tap into them. And so that's this is the reality that I see a lot of my students, particularly who've been through foster care, who've been adjudicated and spent time incarcerated, children who often engaged in really, really violent and unacceptable behavior that often, as I engage with them, I get the sense of that they're coming from a place of simply doing what they think is the most optimal decision for survival. And as I can help them find a way beyond that, they quickly, my experience has been that they've quickly transitioned into living into the version of themselves they always wanted to be to begin with. So related to that, what do you think about the sentence? I've heard a lot of thoughtful folks say, you can't be what you can't, what you haven't seen. You, you can't be what you can't see. So challenging. I mean, this is the nature of kind of scientific, uh, scientific discovery is that it's hard to make really big leaps. And so we look at science. That's not how it actually happens. It happens increment, and then the next increment, the next increment. And so we have kind of this whole vernacular around, like the Einsteins who made these magnificent and huge leaps, partially because it just doesn't happen that way. Like that is the exception of the rule, and that we glorify it is actually a little bit problematic. But the reality is that it happens incrementally, piece by piece by piece by piece. And this is this is a healthy way of understanding, a healthy way of, of what to expect is that we should be looking for. How do we create a space where where we're allowing folks to to experience that growth themselves? That we're creating a space where folks get a little bit stronger, a little bit stronger, a little bit stronger over time. That we're not expecting to go from point A to point Z all at once. And we, we do expect that of young people, don't we? We do. Ex- why can't he try harder? Why can't, you know, we do expect them to be able to make these uh, gigantic leaps that when you look at it through the lens that you're illuminating for us, you know, we should be talking about small steps all the way along and temper our expectations so that we create these opportunities for small steps to serve a greater goal. Well, and this is the coaching that I've often offer leadership teams is that at the governance layer of an organization, what you really want to be looking at is trajectory. Are we showing a stable trajectory up and to the right, essentially? Like, are we seeing that growth take place on behalf of the of the young people that we serve? And so there's this desire, like a brand new school board member will come in and they'll notice righteously and accurately so that only 50% of this group of students can do this thing that's really important. And why is it not 100%? You know, I just got elected in school board. And so now, you know, I demand that we get to 100% next week. And their frustration is not wrong, and their sense of kind of righteous anger around it is not misplaced. But then the question becomes, 
what is the next step? What is the next step? And what I would encourage that board member at all boards is what is the stable trajectory that your board is on? And often that stable trajectory is a flat line. And in that case, boards do need to push. Um, and the leadership teams do need to push. Like, you know what? We can't just stay where we've been for the last 20 years. We do need to see this stable progression up and to the right over time. That we're each day we're getting a little bit better and a little bit better. That requires continuous improvement process. And this is where this idea that do not come to change until adult behaviors change is that I've got to be celebrating uh, the successes that we've experienced, but then, but honoring that they are insufficient to get us to the next level. And that for that, I'm going to have to interrogate my own adult behavior and then identify what is the next change in my behavior to make that next step in the progression. Love this. You know, this reminds me of another episode. So just so people know, the episode I was referring to is called Mapping Goodness. This It's episode 37 on the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast with this woman in London who has created a way so that at any point you can just hit this app, the map on an app and see what the nearest thing about goodness that's happening is to you right now in real time. If there's an event, if there's a group meeting, if there's anything happening, that's related to goodness and progress in your community, you'll be able to see on this map how close it it is and access it. It's a pretty cool thing. The other one that you just reminded me of is this amazing woman named Zoe Weil, who is talking about raising solutionaries. Yeah. She's I, I enjoy the We don't know. We don't need any more visionaries. We need people who get to solutions with each other in brilliant ways of collaborating, in honoring differences, because, you know, that's where all the cool stuff happens, and so forth and so on. So that's episode 91. If folks are interested in the kinds of things that AJ is talking about, there there is a group of educated innovators who are, who are bringing a new way forward for us, and AJ is certainly one of them. So both of those people talk about something you talk about all the time, which I absolutely love, Let's talk about collectivism. And you know, the challenge is that in the space of survival priority, that the scope of my focus narrows down to who are the people in my immediate, who I acknowledge as being in my immediate tribe, people that I am willing to place some trust in, that they are going to help me reach beyond the parameters of survival. And again, that's not just a physiological thing, right? That can be a cultural thing. That can be a sociological thing. But if I feel as if something of my identity or of my physical being is at stake, is at risk, then I can often revert back to the survival priority. And in that space, the idea of what works for all of us is there's no space for that to exist as as the priority. There's no space for a sense of collectivism, a sense for what's possible for for all of us. What are in that moment? I stop trying to use the wheels of creativity to figure out what is going to work for me and for others. And the creativity is deeply invested in what is going to work for me and for my tribal unit right here, right now. And I think that's a, a critical part of this is that. It actually doesn't have to be that constraint that that we are creative enough and powerful enough in our being that if we really apply the creativity, often there is a solution that is both going to work for me in my immediate orbit and work for us collectively. But in in certain contexts, I'm simply not even 
It's not that I don't even see that. It's not that I'm not even looking for that. But, and so this idea for me, this idea of collectivism is when am I fully making myself available to deploy the creativity that I have access to, to look at solutions that aren't, aren't just what addresses my immediate near-term needs for myself and those in my orbit, but what are solutions that both do that and that create a context that works for the rest of us. And that sense of collectivism, I, I think, is a powerful benefit that when public education is working really, really well, we inspire more of that and, it, and we really cause an uplift in our society. And, and when public education is not thriving, when it's not at its potential, and I think a natural consequence of that is a decline in collectivism. Yeah. And, you know, collectivism is... Another word I think that we're using more often than collectivism is greater good. So is what I hear you saying is that it's pretty darn hard to think about the greater good when you're just simply, simply terrified or starving or, you know, think of this person we interviewed for the podcast early on who was there around the time of the hate, the great earthquake in Haiti six or seven years ago. And he told this great story of how people always say, blamed the deforestation in Haiti for the mudslides and and mm-hmm. a lot of the death and destruction. Like, why do they cut down all the trees? And uh, he was saying, like, this poor mother just wants to give her two kids two cups of safe drinking water to firewood, firewood this day. Right. So she cuts down the tree that's only the size of your thumb because she's just got to get two cups of safe water. And they think the greater good or like you were saying, Worry about tomorrow is not on the radar screen when you're ki- when you're starving or when you're in that survival mode. So, but the cool thing about collectivism is that is that we can create it. We can in our schools, like that's what you're talking about, right? If we really looked at the power and the possibility in education, I mean, our children are spending eight, ten, sometimes twelve hours a day in a system. Isn't it all just sitting there waiting for us to think a little bit? harder and imagine more about what's possible. As we close here, what do you really wish people knew? As we all can influence the young people in our neighborhoods or our school districts or or if we are education leaders, school board members, or just connecting with our local schools in some way, what do you really wish people knew? Is there something where you're just going, oh, I really, really wish people knew this and then we could move on? From a and occupational perspective, what I certainly really wish people knew is that it, it is actually possible to educate almost every single one of our children to the highest possible standards. And the only reason to say almost is, is public education, you know, we're responsible for everyone. And so the, there's like this 0.1 to 1% of students who have incredible disabilities that they're dealing with that actually, whether it's intellectual or physiological, makes it really hard for them to be successful. But that is the exception. Once you account for that group, that if we see you know, less than 95, 99% of our students experiencing a success, that means we've got adjustments that we've got to make in our school systems. And then I've got to look at what is the next step and what is the next step that I could be taking in my context, whether that's in the classroom or the board, to really make more perfect what's possible with the students that we serve. And so from an occupational level, if there's one thing that I wish people knew is that it is in fact possible to educate all of our children, but that the that possibility is bound up in my willingness to identify what is the next step that I need to take in my context and the next step and the next step and the next step. From a more 
philosophical perspective, I'd say the one thing I wish people knew is that I always have the ability to make a choice that could be transformative. That I feel like, and I've seen in my own life, there are moments in my life where I feel like there's there is no option that I'm that I've reached the end of what is possible in my life, bearing joy and hope and anything else. And even in those moments, with the benefit of hindsight, there was a choice that I could make in the context of that despair, in the context of that hardship, that could be transformative in my life and the lives of those around. So if there's one thing that I want people to know, it's kind of at the, at the level of being human there. In, in all of our circumstances, there is a choice that I can make that leads to more of the future that I want for myself and those around me, even in the you know the most challenging of context. And that the challenge in those moments becomes, am I willing to really get present to what that next choice might be so that I can live into the possibility that emanates from that rather than the direction that I'm currently going? Let's wrap our interview up today with a couple of really important things. <laughs> AJ has a book that the, just the title makes me feel better about the world and the future of education. His book that's coming out or is out now is called Great on Their Behalf. This episode will publish in the end of March. AJ, tell us about Great on Their Behalf and whether people can get their hands on it or not yet. Yeah, book's out March 28th. It's been a labor of love just trying to capture. What is it that communities and school boards can do to try to make sure that the school boards are really effective at maintaining a focus on how are students learning, as opposed to what is easily possible is for folks to lose that focus and to get pulled into so many other things. What I often say is the, in, the intention of the book is to help accelerate the transition from an adult inputs focused to a student's outcomes focused. This is the gist of it, right? When we hear in the news about strife and friction and so forth on school boards and in school leadership, I'm sure at every level, it's really about something you and I talked about early on in this interview. And I encourage people to go back and listen to that part. We're going to make some really good show notes for you. And if that, if it was kind of set off some little bells in your mind when AJ and, and I were talking earlier about focusing on the on the strategies instead of the outcomes. I yeah. I really think that's what's tripping us up. We all have a book that we love or we have a philosophy that served us or right. we have something that's gotten us through the night. So we bring that to our efforts to do good in the world and be public servants like volunteer to be on the school board, right? So we bring yeah. these strategies that have helped us out to the school board meetings or whatever. But then we get kind of, is that what I hear you say? The challenge becomes instead of fighting for what's possible for children, I start fighting for the strategy that I'm familiar with, fighting for this area that I think is the absolute essential. And probably the worst example of this, you know, was me when I joined my local school board is in a previous career as a computer programmer. And so when I joined the school board, I was absolutely adamant that the technology of the school system was just antiquated and the antiquated nature of it was making it harder for children to be successful. And as I visited classrooms, I saw these old computers that just sat in the corner and went unused because they were ancient. I noticed that we had trouble getting meaningful information from the administration about certain things because some of our central office data systems were just so out of date. 
And so I just pushed and pushed and pushed. Like the thing of holding our school system back is we've got to get this technology together. With the benefit of hindsight, it's obvious to me now that, and if you had asked me at that time, are you focused on student outcomes? I was said, yes, absolutely. I'm absolutely focused on student outcomes. Like we've got to get these things right to get student, otherwise we'll never see an improvement in student outcomes. And I wouldn't have been lying to you in that moment. I wouldn't have been trying to be deceptive, but I would have been self-deceived. And that's the critical thing to distinguish is that I absolutely believe that I was focused on student outcomes when I was very clearly textbook focused on adult inputs. And does that suggest that I was wrong about my observations about the technology? No, I was spot on about my observations about the technology. But the critical distinction I didn't make is that I wasn't analyzing what students needed most. I was analyzing from the lens of what, what do I most understand or what do I most have the skill set to offer. I, I was putting myself at the center of the equation, my knowledge, my contribution at the center, rather than the outcomes of students at the center. Had I done that, I would have asked some very different questions. That I would have been curious about very different things. Like, hey, what is it that is most holding our students back? And I probably would have come up with something around the earliness of us getting the literacy instruction available and it's the quality of instruction they're experiencing and the quantity of instruction they're experiencing and things of that nature probably would have been in the top five. Technology would have been the list. It probably would have been somewhere around 27 or 28 on the list. I was treating it as if it was number one on the list, not because I was focused on student outcomes, because I was focused on adult inputs. And worse than that, not just focused on adult inputs, focused on the adult inputs that I had the most familiarity with. And in that moment, my behavior unintentionally was absolutely harmful to children. So, AJ, I just can't tell you how big I think this insight is. If, if we can preserve people's dignity and let people do just exactly what you just did, say, you know, <laughs> my, my way of thinking on this has improved. And when I did that, it wasn't, it didn't turn out to be for the greater good. And we can acknowledge everybody's good intentions for bringing their expertise or their, the, the thing that helps them get through the night or, or feel like they've made progress in their own lives. God, that's part of the good intentions of anybody who wants to work with children is what worked for me. But I just want to point out how dramatically different you're just saying, focus on the outcomes. My idea would have been number 27 if I just focused on what was good for the outcomes we can all agree on. Yeah. No, it's, it's a challenging thing because obviously we want to be of service. We, we want to be part of lifting up what's possible for children. You know, we, we want to be a part of that solution. And so the easiest, most natural thing to do is to reach out for the thing that I understand the most. This isn't done out of malice. This is, it really is done out of love. But what it suggests is that while education is a business of love, that we have to show up as our most loving selves as we serve children. The love is not enough, that it has to be partnered with a certain amount of expertise and a, and a rigorous willingness to put the interest and the needs and the concerns of children ahead of even my own insights and my own areas of expertise. I mean, imagine the school board where you know, we have attorneys who join and they insist, well, the, the number one, if we just get these contracts right, that, that everything, that children will better understand. And then, you know, we get the plumber who joins the board as well. If we would just get the 
infrastructure of our school buildings right, you know, that everything would be better for our children. And then, you know, the doctor joins the board. Well, if we just kids had better, you know, ear, note, eye, ear, throat, nose, you know, screenings, then everything would be better. And what you have is folks just try to bring the best version of themselves to be of service to children. And unfortunately, that actually more often than not leads us away from being of service, away from a focus on student outcomes rather than toward it. So, okay, let's say we were able to make that shift and preserve everybody's dignity. And and is that what you do? Do you go and facilitate school boards to to tell us what you actually do? You go and you, as I understand it, you facilitate school boards that in their hearts want to make a, a transition that's good for everybody. And that's it. It's just it's a conversation. I just show up. I ask a few questions and invite folks to reflect on their own adult, adult choices and adult behaviors. And what I find overwhelmingly is school board members across the country that, when really invited to reflect on these things, often see the exact same things that I saw. That I, I just wish that I had seen it sooner, or someone had pointed out sooner. And a large part of the point of the book and the conversations my team and I lead is to really just give board members a fighting chance at living out their intentions, which involves first just getting clear about the extent to which the focus is on adult inputs rather than student outcomes. That's lovely. Now, is this book great on their behalf, aimed at just people that are school board members, teachers, parents? Who's going to enjoy this book? Anyone who is really interested in advocating for students, but at the level of the school system, not just at the level of their school, this book is for you. So whether it's parents, teachers, community leaders, or school board members, if folks are seeing things play out at the level of the school system as a whole, rather than just their school as an individual, their kid's classroom as an individual, if it's at the level of the system as a whole that people are curious about, how does that work and how can we really drive what's possible for children at the system level, this book is really targeted to that person. Okay. Thank you so much for that. So where can people get, where can people reach you? I found you because I, have you been in Vermont at some point? I'm in Northern Vermont. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And I found someone on LinkedIn. I just put the word out there and I immediately found someone on LinkedIn who you had helped their school board Mm -hmm. and they, (laughs) this woman couldn't, he couldn't, she couldn't sing your praises enough about what a game changer your assistance to her community was. So how do people get a hold of you if they want to explore all this further? Yeah, I just encourage people to reach out. If they want to learn about the book, it's just greatontheirbehalf.com, and the book will be available wherever people buy their favorite books, uh, particularly online. But if people want to connect with me, it's just aj at ajcrable.com. It's aj at ajcrabill.com. And particularly, you know, I love hearing from folks who are doing the work and are just looking for a thought partner. I'm, I'm always happy to be that. Or if folks have questions about the book, I'm happy to answer those. What I'm also really curious about is, you know, as folks are finding really innovative solutions to how they're making a difference in the lives of children in their community. I know these things are often very location-specific, but I, I still love learning about what's working elsewhere because that gives insights into what might work for the students in my community or some of the other schools that's not served. And so I just encourage folks who are doing things and you have actual data, not just anecdotal, but real data and analysis that bears out the difference that your work has made. I'd hope to reach out. I feel so strongly about your work and this fresh approach that you're bringing to it that we will have to have a part two because I- I'd love that. (laughs) 
I do. I have goosebumps head to toe right now. I want an episode where you just tell those stories, where you just go story after story after story of success and what that what that looks like, creative ideas, because I'm sure one of the things I love best about humans that we aren't celebrating enough is that when our backs are to the wall, we can get creative. We can find a way to collaborate. You look at all the most important and really fully collapsing place times in history. We came together. We found a way to to use our diversity to come up with ingenious ideas. And that's what's that's what I'd love for you to talk about next time. Will you come back and fill us full of all these yeah. these super super ideas people have come up with? Yeah, I've been delighted. There's just so many great things that people are doing to serve children all across the country. And I absolutely love being able to you know, sing the praise of our hardworking teachers all across the country. Okay, great. We'll, we'll do that. We'll, I'm just going to throw that, throw a date on the calendar now. We'll try and make sure an episode of that, just so you can look forward to it, comes at kind of the end of the school year around June 1st. And, and AJ and I will get some on our calendars to record that episode too. So thank you for joining AJ in this amazing hour of thoughtful, fresh perspectives, kind of a diagonal of looking at some of our problems that we're just facing straight on every single day and, and able to see our, our way around. I hope that all these connections to goodness and progress that AJ and I have turned you on to will carry you through your week and you'll start finding all the joy and wonder that we've been talking about as possible. Please visit us at the Goodness Exchange. You can find a spring in your step. And with as little as about four minutes of positive news, it makes you, there's science to this, 18 to 32% more productive and happy in your life. So <laughs> join us at the Goodness Exchange because there's a lot of folks just like AJ there that we're shining a light on. Thanks, AJ. Thank you so much. It's great to get to spend time with you. All right. Have a great day, everybody. <laughs>